The Healthy Bronx podcast features the work of community leaders, grassroots organizations, policymakers, and healthcare workers to better understand health in the Bronx. Today, our guest is Dr. Alada Mejioki, family and social medicine physician based at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Shout out to Dr. Oki before we begin, as he's been a supporter of this podcast from its first episode. My name is Alexander Levine. by kind of introducing what your role is at Albert Einstein College of Medicine? Sure. Uh, thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Oki. I am the uh, Assistant Clerkship Director for the Family Medicine Clerkship. I am also the Theme Director for the Population Health Sciences and the Course Director for the Health System Science and Health Equity course, which um, all first years uh, have been taking starting since the summer of 2020. I feel like the Einstein and Montfort's family and social medicine department is is unique in some ways. For someone who's not as familiar, can you describe what are the major tenets of of, uh, what you guys do? Sure. We're a department that's really steeped in the idea of social medicine and social justice, which really takes the idea of knowing the context in which your patients live, the communities that we serve, um, and really trying to not only um, treat the patients medically, but really advocating for them and in their lives, in their social context, and really trying to get out into the community more and really work with the community and learn from the community what are the things that are really important and affecting the health of our patients. What's a little bit unique about our department is, um, I'm, you know, I'm a family doctor, but we actually also have a internal medicine track and a pediatric track all in our department as well. So even though those are each their own departments, the social medicine track within those departments are housed under our department. And so how, you said you, part of the practice is to get out into the community. How, how do you guys do that? We try to really get community voice in um, playing some of the curriculum. We do, we've done things like um, planning community um, or inviting, uh, how would you say, like a um, farmer's markets to come to our clinics to work that way. We've partnered with local um, convenience stores and bodegas to try to rearrange how they do their stores so that they may be more healthier options or at eye level, for example, in the um, beverage area, instead of having the soda at eye level, having water at eye level at the front, instead of having like candy, trying to have like healthier like fruits, vegetables, nuts, things like that. Um, we've also really during um, one of the things I do at the department is I'm also the faculty that's part of helping run the social medicine immersion month, which is a uh, month for all the first year family medicine doctors and pediatricians and internal medicine to really learn more about the Bronx and really try to center the community. Um, and that's something we've been in charge of as well. And for the last few years, we've really tried to center that community voice, both in the planning and really highlighting them um, during the month as well. And so what are a few of the things that might be featured in that month where uh, new residents who maybe are not from the Bronx, but are coming here to train? Um, what kinds of things are they um, or are you guys doing to help them become more familiar with the borough and, and connect more with community? One thing we've done a lot of is actually inviting community members to come speak directly to them. So instead of having, you know, a faculty member um, teach about what's going on in the community, it may be around housing or around um, activism, is actually really inviting those members into the space to speak on what they're doing. 
we've actually, one of the big things we do every year is we usually do a tour of the Bronx as well. So we kind of, um, the last couple of years, we've focused on the South Bronx and really walking around there, seeing different landmarks, the community gardens, hearing about some of the history about like the Young Lords and um, the kind of burning of the Bronx in the, um, in the 80s or so. And really trying to get them familiar with both the history of the Bronx, the work of activism within the Bronx and kind of the agency in the community that's often um, been very good at and had to really strive for themselves and um, advocate for themselves and then trying to tie that to what the role of physicians are instead of coming in and trying to be saviors or trying to think we can fix the Bronx that the Bronx doesn't need fixing it's been doing um, very well on its own and what it needs is to be kind of give it to be supported in that mission instead of having people come in and think they can take over the mission. And so how do you make the connection explicit to supporting that mission and to medicine and uh, your practice that's maybe inside the hospital or inside a clinic? I think it's really about trying to change the framework in which you see what the role of a physician is, especially a primary care physician. I think oftentimes during training, because we focus so much on giving you all the medical knowledge you'll need, you often go and say, okay, I have this knowledge, I need to figure out a way to like translate this to the communities I serve to like help them and fix them. But I think by really focusing on the social context, really focusing on the non- traditionally medical factors that are really affecting our patients' health at a much higher rate. It really lets you start um, realizing that there needs to be much more of a community community partnership. There needs to be much more introspection amongst physicians about how we may be contributing to some of the harm that these communities have and trying to change some of the previous practices that we've gotten very used to. And so what are some of the factors that currently you guys feel like you're thinking a lot about in terms of things that are impacting health? Um, so right now, especially with COVID, I think, you know, um, food access is a big one. Housing stability is very big right now in terms of that. I think one thing I've personally been thinking about is a lot of patients during the times have told me they, they have like very large medical bills, which they would, would have already had a hard time paying down before, which n- even more so now is going to be really, really hard. And just trying to be much more cognizant of what tests we're ordering, why we're ordering it to be just much, much better stewards of the um, kind of the medical ed- economics. Um, I think the other big thing you're seeing in the community a lot is, and I think this again shows the strength of the community, is a lot of mutual aid organizations have really popped up to support the community during these times. So, you know, we were speaking about um, kind of food insecurity being worsened during this time where you're having, you know, over 20 million people now who are food insecure. And you you see organizations like um, La Mirada and um, Ghetto Gastro really kind of working together to really try to go and feed and serve the community. Um, by just taking care of each other. And that's what the, um, the Bronx community has often done. I think that's one of the reasons I love working here is just learning that history that when the community is in need, the Bronx steps up to take care of itself. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that's connected to mutual aid and also this idea of the borough being able to take care of itself is local efforts, grassroots efforts versus government interventions. And I feel like in the last episode, we talked a lot about where public investment falls short and how sometimes there's, it seems like there's kind of like band-aids to some issues because um, maybe it's like a small grassroots effort that needs a more intervention on a systemic level, like around food. Are there places where you feel like there does need to be government interventions that, that can address these, address it at more of a systemic level? I think definitely. Yeah. I think there's a lot of room for policy to um, really assist in these issues. I think you, you brought up the issue pretty well where, Sometimes when you start thinking of policy and more systemic changes in that manner, you get a lot more, for lack of a better term, cooks in the kitchen and people who have their own interests in trying to ha- drive what happens. And you can sometimes 
wind up ha having things that ha you can sometimes wind up having the people who've been doing the work on the ground not be well represented in making the policy. And then mm -hmm. of course, then that viewpoint is missed and then you can wind up having very big gaps. Um, you know, one thing I just think of off my head is the city bike initiative and how when that was first thought out, it was a great way to, you know, it gets people active. It maybe helps with transportation in areas where it's a little bit harder. Um, but then you start seeing the way that was rolled out was communities of color were specifically kind of excluded from that initial um, um, kind of um, rollout. Exactly, rollout. And there was a few years ago, I think, a study showing that the biggest predictor of if you would have a city bike station near you was race. And so I think you can often lose that um, on the ground initiative. But I think, like you said, like a lot of these grassroots initiatives can be great, but there needs to be that more systemic change that goes with it. Um, so with food, for example, you know, trying to make food, uh, trying to like eliminate food deserts and eliminate food swamps and make healthy food more available and cheaper. And um, that would take a much bigger systemic response as well. Mm -hmm. And since you've mentioned food a few times, and I think it's, it's basically come up in every episode I've done, uh, are there particular food initiatives uh, right now during COVID that, that your department has been involved in? Um, not particularly, not specifically as a department. There have been things um, we've been, like individuals in the department have been involved in. One of the things I was really passionate about most recently rolled out was for the first year um, Einstein course of the, um, health system science and health equity. We actually had a food justice panel where we had um, people doing work around food justice in the community come speak to the students. And they were able to talk about a lot of the work they're doing, including the work with Project Bravo with the food pantry and um, how they started expanding some of this, the stuff they're doing to really support the community. We were able to speak with- um, Sorry, can you explain what, what Project Bravo is to someone who's not uh, familiar or who's not within Einstein or Montefiore? Oh, sure, sure. It's a, essentially, it's a food pantry um, that's kind of run with the assistance of Montefiore outside of Montefiore. And of course, during this time of COVID, their clientele has really expanded to include much more people who are working but having trouble making ends meet, people who lost their jobs during COVID, the whole pandemic, um, people who lost family members and now maybe lost their main source of support. And so it really expanded to both like from just doing food, but also like looking into providing supplies, clothes, things like that, especially as, things, as it gets colder and people start needing more, um, help outside of just food. And so they really started to expand beyond that. And so we had um, Tanisha Malone come speak about that. We had a few health food kind of activists come and talk about some of the work they've done in, in using community gardens to try to feed the community themselves. And we talked a little bit about kind of these um, community fridges and that, that project where the idea is, is you know, there's fridges available throughout the community that anyone can go to at any time and take out what they need um, to use from it as well. Mm -hmm. And so, sorry, who, who, who are some of the people that you brought to the panel? Were they, oh, most, sure. were they all from the Bronx? Yes, yeah, so they were all from the Bronx. Um, there was um, uh, Paulette Spencer. There was um, I, uh, there was Henry. There was, who else was on? Tanisha Malone. Um, and These are all was, like local yeah. food activists? Exactly, yeah. Um, okay. Local food activists or people who are doing work around food justice in some way. Like so Tanisha Malone runs, is the coordinator for Project Bravo. Um, okay. But those are like food activists as well. Okay. And so you mentioned how this was part of uh, your work on the um, directing the health system science and health equity component of the curriculum at Albert Einstein. Um, so can you speak a little bit more about what that, I know this is, has been a major component of your, uh, I think your academic work in the last year. So what, what are the goals of that and, and kind of introduce what that, what that is? Sure, sure. So the course was actually, it's a, 
very big passion of mine. It was the idea was we need to start introducing these topics around health equity and health disparities to young doctors really at the beginning. So they understand that just as it's important for them to learn the anatomy and to learn physiology, it's important for them to learn the context in which they, they practice care. And so what the uh, real framework of this course was, was to introduce the social factors which affect health, what is driving those social factors, including um, more structural drivers, things like you know, classism, sexism, racism, ableism, um, um, homophobia, transphobia, all those things that are affecting why certain people are at higher risk of having more exposure to these negative social determinants of health, essentially. Um, and then not only to really give that knowledge, but to really start letting the um, really the new students practice how do you practice thinking of how you can make the system more fair. And so that including advocacy, including, you know, activism, and really starting to get the, the, the framework of which they approach their education and their expectation of what a good physician should be, and really letting them frame that from a very early place. So we were able to do a lot of small group exercises to really get them reflecting and thinking, a lot of pre-readings, and um, I'm hopeful, I think the course went really well this year. And so what, is it, was it primarily through lecture and discussion-based courses at this so far? Probably, I would say maybe about half of it was lecture discussion-based and then half of it was really small group reflections, activity, um, and really kind of being a little bit more critical, um, more of like building that critical consciousness. And as like the first time kind of rolling this out, are there things that you see moving forward in terms of building it that you, you want to continue to add into the curriculum? Definitely. I think, and this was a great excitement for me, and I somewhat suspected it, but I, you know, you're never really sure, but I was impressed with how much um, prior knowledge that a lot of the students came in with. A lot of them had already been thinking of these issues, had been really uh, well-versed. So I feel like going forward, I can probably push the level of discourse a little bit further um, than I initially thought I could. Um, so that was really, really great. Um, I think there are a lot of topics, uh, you know, the course is only 10 hours, so there were a lot of topics that I didn't necessarily get to cover that I would have liked to. Um, so the hope is that the course will be expanding going forward. Um, I've um, been in having good talks with some of the leadership, and it seems that's going to happen, and I think it'll give us a chance to really start exploring other avenues. Um, like, you know, we, we, I really highlighted food, like as we talked about for a while, food justice, but I think there are very similar conversations to be had around housing and, and transportation. and um, really diving into more around healthcare access and what that can look like and why just having access to a healthcare system or a doctor isn't really enough to achieve health equity and really delving into what those issues can look like, which we were able to touch on a bit, but not really dive into. And, and what was the design of the course like? Was this like a couple of weeks long or was this a series of like a lecture series? What was the... Sure. It was, it was um, spread out throughout the fall semester, I guess you would say. So about every two to three weeks, there would be a talk, um, either lecture format or a small group format. Um, so just kind of the idea was to make it a little bit longitudinal to hopefully be able to tie into some of the stuff they're learning in their other courses so they can start applying it as well. Um, I think it worked well. So it didn't feel too lumped together, but it was close enough that people could remember what we talked about last time. And do you see service learning as a component of this? Like, I know now it's been difficult because most things are virtual, but um, getting students to work with community organizations that you mentioned maybe are already connected to your to the family and social medicine department. Do you see that as potentially um, something that would be would be part of this course? I think ideally, definitely, if we're able to get the time, I think that's really the critical component because right now we can kind of build up some of that um, 
that knowledge and that knowledge base needed to be able to understand why these issues are important. But the next step is really to get out there and see it for yourself, see what the community is doing, learn to like start building those relationships now and see it so that you can start envisioning, okay, when I'm practicing and whatever I choose, I have, I have experience working with community members. I know what that looks like. I know the importance of it. Um, and I think it really just provides a unique framework for viewing how um, you'll practice. Mm-hmm. So then I guess transitioning, uh, one thing we talked about in the last episode and you've mentioned to me in previously is that this like idea of the digital divide has affected what kind of access people have to telemedicine. Is that something that you feel like has affected your patients? And if so, how? I think definitely. I think that's um, both it has affected them and I think has the potential to affect them even worse going forward. Um, So I, and not to use any names, but the system I work in right now, um, we reimburse telephone visits very differently than video visits. So there's been, of course, this understandable pressure to try to get video visits to be the standard of care um, for if we're going to do some sort of like telemedicine visit. The concern, video visits get more reimbursement. Exactly. They get reimbursed at a higher rate. So the concern for a lot of my patients has been um, video visits, of course, require a higher bandwidth of internet essentially requires a much stronger internet which a lot of my patients don't have access to so what i'll often notice is you're um you're able to get them on the video and then it's a very choppy video you can't really use it or understand it you can't hear them they can't hear you so you wind up having to switch the phone calls anyway um which i think for now is fine because we're still accepting that but i i fear that as we look at the losses that have accumulated from covid that there's going to be this mandate that physicians shouldn't be using their time for telephone visits, that it doesn't justify the time used for that, and that it either needs to be in-person or video. And mm-hmm. as in-person stays limited, as we're now starting to go into our second um, kind of wave here in New York, that um, people who can't do video may have very, very long waits to get care. And that's kind of one of the fears I have going forward. And then there's a se- whole separate group of people right. who just don't have video capabilities, period, even mm-hmm. if they have the, the bandwidth, they, they don't have a smartphone that has video capabilities. They don't have a computer they can use that they're really stuck to using um, a telephone and again, trying to make sure they don't wind up falling through the cracks. But you're saying sometimes the issue is they may have access to video, but the connection's not strong enough. And so Mm -hmm. you switch to telephone. Yes. Okay. And so that connects this idea of broadband access where it needs to be high speed internet, not just so because someone may have internet, but it's not necessarily Exactly. Quality, yeah. high speed. Okay. Exactly. Just by having it in there by itself isn't, again, I think if you're starting to look at determinants of health right now, we're going to start seeing more and more that internet access will become one, especially mm-hmm. with even in schooling, right? You have, a, I, you, you hear stories all the time of like um, students who've been doing remote who haven't ever logged on and it's because they either don't have the device to log on or they don't have the bandwidth to log on. And those are just, you know, students who aren't going to get, who are losing out on education. And there's no real backup plan for that at this point. Mm-hmm. And do you, have you seen a difference between the kind of care you're able to offer in a phone visit versus a, a computer visit or like a, a, a video visit? A hundred percent. Yeah. Cause I think the great thing about a video visit is a, it lets you pick up more on visual cues. So mm-hmm. you know, there might be times where someone says something, but they like they have a look on their face that lets you know, okay, I need to probe that a little bit more. Um, just the ability to look at rashes, to look at, to do a physical assessment, you know, one mm-hmm. of the first things you teach um, medical students when you're learning to do the physical exam is just the general assessment of the patient. What do they look like? Do they look comfortable? Do they, do they look upset? Do they look like they're in pain? And over the phone, you don't really have the ability to um, do all that. And so that does decrease it a bit. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned um, how the internet 
is becoming or is maybe a social determinant of health at this point. Um, what, uh, I guess since you guys are like a family medicine, you're, you're a family medicine physician, how do you connect with families to understand what their children's needs are as it relates to education right now? So it's really through, it's, and the great thing about being a family doc, it's really through conversation. So, you know, both when I'm doing in-person and even video, it's the observation of what's going on in the background, what, um, just talking to the, your, the patients. Oh, oftentimes now when I'm doing my physicals, I'm asking, are they doing in-person? Are they doing remote? Are they doing blended? Asking how the remote's going. For some children, they've adapted very well and they can sit in front of a computer. For others, a lot of parents have told me, like, they're, they, my child can't sit in front of the computer for that many hours and pay attention. And I'm realizing that their grades are starting to fall off because they're just not paying attention. And so really then trying to game plan around that, figure out tips that maybe have scheduled breaks in between so the child isn't getting too bored. Um, again, tr troubleshooting around issues with internet access and trying to figure out ways you can maybe try to get around that, which is tough because with everything not really open, it's not like you can, you can say, oh, you can try going to the library and saying if you can go there, it's just a lot of very limited options where you can tell someone who doesn't have a stable internet connection. Um, mm -hmm. And when, I know like when they were making the decision in the summer, if schools were going to be remote, virtual, hybrid in New York City, they surveyed like a lot of families. Um, and I think ultimately their decision was guided somewhat by that, like data from those surveys. Uh, do you, have you guys connected with city government at all in, in terms of like voicing the needs of, of patients as it relates to education? Since that's Not, been such yeah. a big issue for families. Not so much with city government yet, because I think it's it's really a complex, like I think, issue. Because even just uh, anecdotally, with speaking with my patients, there were a group of them who decided, no matter what, I'm, you know, like we're staying remote. That we we had family members, friends who wanted to pass away this pandemic. I don't think it's worth the risk to send them to school. And you have some parents who are like, I don't have the ability to have like my child home all the time. I'm, you know, we're working. There's no one here. I don't have that ability. Especially or, if they're an essential you know, worker, where they exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They don't, they don't have the ability to like work from home and they need to go to work and there's no one at home. Um, and then also, I think the thing that we often don't think about is, you know, school's not just really education. That's also one to two meals a day that like it's kind of covered that you don't have to worry about arranging paying for or, or anything like that. And so when they're out of school, that kind of changes that as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So again, I think uh, kind of turning to another part of your uh, what I believe is you're involved in your practices. Um, in the past, you talked to me about how one thing that's changed in primary care, at least in the Bronx, is that buprenorphine can be prescribed to patients who have um, issues with opioid uh, use. And so can you talk about how that is involved in, in your practice? Sure, sure. So I think what you're referring to is um, that previously before buprenorphine, if you had an opioid use disorder, um, and you wanted to get that treated, your options were really to do either use methadone or to go to a essentially a abstinent-based drug treatment program where you would try to, in a monitored setting, stop using, go through withdrawal, have that managed, and then it would leave, you know, what they call what they would call clean. Um, of course, the issues with that is it it's very that's a tough thing to go through. It's a, there's only so many inpatient rehab centers that are available. And so there's a limited supply. And then if that's not what the person is ready to do at that point, then there's no other treatment options. Um, and the issue with methadone is, well, you know, it works very well for a lot of people is that it does require you to go to a methadone center. And mm -hmm. initially you have to go every single day. You have to you get your medic, you wait online, you get your medication, and then you have to go again the next day. 
Um, if you've been doing it for a while and you're doing pretty well from their standard, they'll sometimes let you carry a week's worth of medicine at a time. But as you can imagine, that's very disruptive for your day-to-day. And if you work in the morning or have a, a shift that doesn't let you get there, then it's very hard to get the treatment. Mm-hmm. So what's been nice about buprenorphine for the last um, many years, actually, it's been probably um, over, maybe closer over a decade now. Um, what's been nice about buprenorphine is that it lets people get um, treatment for opioid use disorder, but from a regular, like, clinic that they don't need to go to um, anywhere special they can get up to a month worth of the medicine at a time and so it's much it's much more flexible for patients it lets them um, be able to kind of take the medication on their own terms and it lets them be able to do that with a doctor they potentially trust to someone they've known for a while and that they who knows about their um, issues and their kind of holistic view of themselves already and so that's kind of what i've been able to um, provide for my patients that i've had for a while i I'm also doing the buprenorphine treatment for them. So it's much more integrated into their primary care as opposed to being something that a specialist is. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's really integrated. They're like, they're, they're in the waiting room. No one can tell what they're there for. Like along with, you know, taking care of that, the opioid use disorder might be also treating their high blood pressure, their diabetes or COPD. It's all, it's just really an office visit and we're just taking care of whatever the person's needs are, which I think is one of the, the benefits of primary care that you're just trying to take care of whatever your patient's needs are. And just as a, um, as a note to people who maybe are, are not in the medical field or less familiar, uh, why is it that buprenorphine can be prescribed in a primary care office where methadone is like a more involved treatment course? Because methadone, um, for some political reasons, historical, has a much higher um, government re- barrier regulations. So in terms of how it's stored, in terms of, you know, the training needed to prescribe it. Um, and some of that is just like, I, again, I think political, a little bit just this fear of opioids and this kind of a little bit of stigmatization of opioid use disorder and the idea that, oh, so if we're going to treat it, it needs to be in this very monitored setting with, and we need to make sure they're not using it just for you know, recreation or whatever it is. And so um, I think that with um, buprenorphine, because it has um, more of that partial agonist this role and that if you try to use it in other ways like injection it's actually attached to an antagonist that it has a little it's much harder for it to be used for non-treatment purposes for someone who is using opioids essentially mm-hmm. is a way to think about it um, right so it can't it, they, it can't be injected right exactly yeah exactly yeah it can't be if you try to inject it you wouldn't get any of the euphoria symptoms from it you would just get the really the antagonist portion so mm-hmm. it could actually trigger withdrawal if you try to inject it if anything and then the idea stands that with methadone, the patient should be supervised because there's a, a risk of relapse or 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 uh, like more excess of use of the drug, right? Exactly. If they're, if they're use in or diversion, or the, the idea that you can use methadone to achieve that euphoria, essentially at a much easier rate. And even if you are using, you can use it to like build it higher. And so that's some of the um, thought process behind it. Mm. And um, so. Mm. Yeah. I was going to say, but actually going off that, even though it's l- a little bit less regulated than methadone, I, to me personally, I think it's still severely overregulated. You need much more training to be able to give buprenorphine than you do to give like oxycodone, which mm-hmm. um, is actually out of the two of them. If, if I had to pick which one I'd rather have people using like um, to achieve euphoria, I would much prefer the buprenorphine because there's kind of that ceiling effect where you it's going to because it's only a partial agonist, it's only so high it's going to go versus something like oxycodone or morphine, which can really cause respiratory depression and death. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some reason, it's much, much harder to, like all you need to prescribe oxycodone or morphine is just get your DEA and that's it. 
and then to do this, you have to get a DEA, then take a separate eight-hour course to be able to prescribe uh, buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. And DEA is a. Can you explain what DEA is? Oh, it's just it's like it's a special license to be able to prescribe controlled substances, essentially. Okay, um, and yeah, that so and it's you have to be a physician to to have to have the DEA. Yeah, I I believe so. Yes, I'm trying to think of. Um, there may be places also, or maybe I think you NPs and PAs may also be able to as well. So kind of anyone in the yeah. primary care. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But there are other specialties can as well. So like any mm-hmm. physician can, it doesn't have to just be primary care, but anyone, it's anyone who can dispense medications um, can at times get a, a DEA too, who can prescribe mm-hmm. medication. Sorry. But the takeaway being that buprenorphine is still more regulated than those substances, which could be um, abused more easily. Or, exactly. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. There isn't. You, if you were sitting down with someone and trying to explain why buprenorphine was more regulated, and you were just doing it from a complete logical point of view, it wouldn't make sense. You can't logically explain why it is. It's it's very political. It's very historical. But logically, it wouldn't make sense why, if you looked at those two drugs, that one would be much more regulated than the other. Mm-hmm. Cool. And I just want to make sure because I feel like some people listening to this aren't familiar with how these drugs work. Buprenorphine, the idea is it has a ceiling on how much euphoria you could get. So exactly, yeah, it's a partial agonist to kind of um, attach some like um, like an, an antagonist essentially. Um, and then, uh, so a, a couple more questions about um, your uh, your practice currently. Uh, when we think about family medicine in the Bronx, there's a lot of um, I think the first thing that comes to mind often is, is how you treat chronic disease, hypertension, diabetes. Um, and all, we, we mentioned food a lot. Obviously food is very connected to that. Um, but during the pandemic, how do you approach chronic disease when, especially as it gets colder, where like, you know, if, if lifestyle interventions are really important, eating well, exercise. Um, but I think it's, it's that some of those things are much harder now, especially if you're, if you're scared of going outside or you're scared of, you know, maybe, it's like if you go to Pelham Bay Park, there sometimes it is really crowded, and, and that might be a deterrent to someone going out and exercising. So, is, is have you guys what are, what is your approach or framework to thinking about um, those kind of lifestyle changes during this time? Yeah, definitely. I think great question. I think one of the first things I've really tried to do with patients is just acknowledge how hard it is because I think you know it's since March it's been very hard to be in New York to be in the Bronx, um, and I, I we I've noticed a few patients who have maybe like not, achieved, not had as great of a control of their chronic conditions as they had previously before the pandemic. And so I think the first thing I've been trying to do is just acknowledge that it's, you know, don't feel bad, it's, it's hard. It's been a very hard time for all of us. Um, what I'll often try to do is game plan. If, if I'm talking about trying to get more exercise, for example, we might game plan, okay, do you wanna try maybe doing it early in the morning or maybe it's not as crowded. Sometimes it's really alleviating some of the fears. Like some people have the fear to go outside at all and saying, if you want to go for a walk outside your block and around and it's not crowded, you have your mask, it's probably fine. You're not really exposing yourself to that um, much of an increased risk. Um, I've had some patients where I've really worked on trying to figure out what exercises they can do in the house or in, in, in their home, um, both ways to get cardio, ways to um, do resistance training that's in the home so they can feel safer that way. Um, in terms of like um, snacking has been a big thing we've had to counsel on a lot because I've noticed that a lot of my patients, um, because of all the stress of what's been happening, I think especially earlier in the pandemic when it was really watching the, the updates every day to see that another thousand plus people have died and um, it, when it didn't look like in the site, I know a lot of people started kind of nervously snacking and um, had picked up some uh, poor eating habits. So really just trying to catch that and trying to like get them back to where they were before. 
Um, but again, I think all from a point of empathy, knowing that it's been very hard for our patients here. Mm -hmm. And then I think, I think one thing I left out is, so we say hypertension, diabetes, but also stress reduction is big. Um, and so you talked a little bit about that, but how do you think about stress management um, for your patient population during this time? What and initially one of the big um, advices I was giving to patients is like just turn off the TV for a while. Like I think it's it's been it's overload. It's it's too much. You're getting too many updates. You're seeing it too much, and it's, it's just you got to unplug from it for a while. It's, mm -hmm. And I think you can go a few days without getting the next update for a, a, nothing's changing. It's, it, we are where we are. It'll take time to get um, back to where we want to be, but you don't have to like look at every update. And so that was a big thing for a lot of people, just like turning off the TV. Again, I think going for walks outside, I have a few patients who had really not been outside for months because they were just like, you know, they had a family who would go shopping. And so they were really just at, at home. And a lot of them were saying that they, they felt it. They were like, I feel down. I feel really sad. I find myself kind of spontaneously crying. Um, and so really just trying to have remind them that you need to find things you enjoy doing every day and like, and still do them. You can't like deprive yourself of that much happiness. Um, so whether it be reading, whether it be walking, listening to music, just trying to almost like, almost as if it's like a like scheduling in a time. Like if within every day, I'm going to have this one hour, 30 minutes, whatever that time period is, where I'm going to do a thing I like doing just because I like doing it. And so that was really a big one. Um, it's, it was actually great. Our mental health teams, our, you know, our um, psychologists and our social workers were also able to go to telemedicine. And actually, we talked about that earlier. I think one of the benefits of that was it did open up those resources more for people who maybe otherwise couldn't because maybe someone who would love to speak to a counselor or a social worker or a therapist who maybe can't afford to take time off each time they need to come in for that from work, being able to call in was just very helpful to like call and speak with someone mm -hmm. and um, not have to worry about childcare or calling out of work was very beneficial. And so we were able to connect a lot of people that way, um, just trying to do frequent check-ins and trying to really just um, meet people where they are and trying to support them. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in closing, since obviously the last couple, the last week or so, um, there's been a lot of talk about uh, like, I guess, good, vac good news related to the vaccines. Mm -hmm. Has your department been talking about um, sort of what the approach is to talking with patients about uh, safety measures and and what this what this is going to look like in terms of distribution or anything like that. Very preliminary right now because I think we don't fully know um, like you know when the vaccine is going to come. We, it's coming up more and more with our patients. I think we don't know mm -hmm. which one we're going to be using. And mm -hmm. honestly, a lot of us haven't seen the actual studies yet. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's all really been news reports, which is great. But you know, I, I talk with a lot of my colleagues and. Um, I, you always get a little bit wary when you just see the news report when the study hasn't been published yet because mm -hmm. it, uh, it's almost like getting ahead of the, you're trying to get the press ahead of what the actual data is. And mm -hmm. I've sometimes seen certain companies use that as a way to try to get people talking about something. Then you look at the data and it's like, oh, this is not really what they said it was. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we're all, you know, we're eternally optimistic. I think um, we all- Have you had patients different. ask you, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but uh -huh. have you had patients start to ask about it or- Oh yeah, definitely. I think very, very, I think it's, um, it's at the forefront of a lot of patients' minds at this point. Interestingly, I think there's been some people who are excited for it, but a lot of really asking, what do you think about this? And I'm not sure about this. And I, that ties to a lot of the politics that have been happening around vaccine development, um, mm -hmm. unfortunately. So a lot of patients just really not sure if like what the data is behind this. Some people saying, I don't know if I'd want to be the first one to take it. And mm -hmm. a lot of, just a lot of people really asking me my opinion on it. And so I've had to tell them I haven't really seen the study yet. I'd want to make to review it or at least talk to people who have reviewed it to ask, you know, get the right answers for the questions I want. And then 
if it all seems only up and up and it seems viable, then I would, I told them I would likely recommend it, but I would just need to see that first. Sounds good. And I think Dr. Oki, we're gonna, we're gonna call it there, but thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great. All right, perfect. Thank you for having me. This was a really good time. Thanks for tuning in. If you've made it this far through the entire episode, then please follow us on social media and maybe hit us with, with uh, some stars or a little review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. A special shout out to Tim Leong, who's been helping with social media promoting the episode, Ashley Castillo, Ali Kalam, Anu Prashridhar, Bronx One Policy, and Dr. William Jordan and Dr. Oki, who you heard from today for continued support with this project. Thank you. Thank you.